Whatever I need to surrender, whatever I need to embrace to fulfill my life's purpose, I willingly do. This is Ferguson Voices, Disrupting the Frame, a moral courage project presented by Proof, Media for Social Justice, and the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. I'm Jada Woods. Act 5, Surrender to Transform. In the United States, Ferguson is an event around which we mark a before and an after. This is particularly true when we talk about policing, protest, or race. But this is even more profoundly true for the people of Ferguson. For the 100 days, the uprising consumed the city and the hundreds and thousands of people swept up in it. These lives were upended, disrupted, transformed, and the ripple begins with Ferguson and reverberates around the globe. It is one thing to grow, develop, and evolve, but transformation suggests a leap, a leap forward, and a leap of faith. Transformation is not necessarily planned or voluntary. It depends on an openness to being changed by forces around you, a willingness to put yourself in a vulnerable position. Transformation presents new opportunities or obstacles, and the lasting effects may take time to set in. When they do, there's no going back to who you were before. It becomes your responsibility to deal with it, to make your way in a shifted, shattered reality. Many of those transformed by Ferguson have translated transformation into an agenda. Refusing to leave Ferguson behind, these individuals have doubled down on their efforts to bring about lasting change across a range of venues with an array of tools and talent. Post-Ferguson personal reports range from untreated stress to an awakened sense of purpose. Left reeling, many did not take time to process their experiences until months or years later. Some didn't even notice how they had been changed. Even, even to this day, I've had nightmares of friends being killed by police. I've had, you know, I was in Africa. You know, apparently I talked in my sleep. One time I was asleep in a car and I was saying, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, over and over again. <laughs> and, um, real things, you know, I, I've been on panels. And you know how it is, and these panels, you know, people like to bring up the drama of the situation and they'll show film clips of my friends up there uh, running from the police and screaming and you know people threatening us and guns pointed at us and then they say okay Justin now go up, go and speak and I have to get myself emotionally together like I've, I've had times where I've had to do interviews you know people will um, trigger these memories and I'll be so emotionally taxed after it. Like a couple of times, I had to go lay down the rest of the day. Like I did, you know, because I'd be flashing back. You know, there are some people who have been given a diagnosis of PTSD or whatever. Those experiences don't leave your mind, and they're highly stressful. Justin Hansford is a law professor at St. Louis University, specializing in critical race theory, human rights, and global justice. Justin wore different hats during the events in Ferguson. He went out at night with frontline protesters and also worked behind the scenes as an editor of the Ferguson newsletter. A coordinated blast of links and updates with subscription lists topping 15,000 at its peak. Justin also led a delegation of protesters and lawyers to Geneva, Switzerland in December 2014 to testify in front of the United Nations Committee Against Torture. 
The delegation also included Michael Brown's parents, Leslie McSpadden and Michael Brown Sr. You know, when she actually gave her testimony, it was amazing. People from around the world were there. They had their headsets on. It was being translated into different languages. She didn't even get a chance to finish because she was so overcome with emotion because she wasn't just trying to, to tell her side of the story, but trying to explain what her son meant to her. And, and uh, when she finished, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. The people were silent. And I always say that she had been denied her dignity, her chance to tell her side of the story. She had to go all the way to Geneva before she could find a place where she could tell her story before a group of officials, and they respected her and they recognized her dignity. Drafting UN reports, editing the newsletter, and still preparing to teach courses that semester, Justin regularly worked late into the night in his office at the law school. One night, an encounter with a headstrong security guard demonstrated exactly how Justin had been changed by his Ferguson experience. He wanted to close the building at, at midnight so he gets real tough and threatens to kick me out of my own office. And I was like, look, dude, you know, you can shoot me now, but I'm not moving anywhere. So it's sort of like this, this, this Ferguson protester mentality where you've been threatened so many times by police. You, it's very easy to go from zero to 100 and be like, you know, use violence or not. You get trained to think about those confrontations differently because the tactic of intimidation is one of the first tactics they like to use on citizens. But that will never work on someone that's a Ferguson protester. So it's, it's things like that where before Ferguson, I'm a totally different person when it comes to dealing with authority figures or police. I'm just a uh, regular professor, I'm a professor, I'm not some sort of tough guy or anything like that, you know, but after, after those experiences, you, th you know, I am different. Now, the way I've changed, I think it's important for me never to jump when they say jump. It's important for me never to be timid around them, to look them in the eye and tell them that you do your job and I'm going to do my job, and that's it. I'm much more assertive and I'm much more willing to be confrontational than I have been in my entire life. And I'm definitely, I'm not like that with people on the street. Like, I'm, I'm a regular, I'm actually a pretty laid-back person, I think. In a legal environment, Justin stayed in his lane. But like so many others during that time, Justin existed in multiple and often conflicting spaces. Feeling the lasting impact of protest life on his personal and professional life, Justin cites a new sense of courage and confidence. You know, we had strength in numbers. It was easier to be courageous amongst all these people that seemed to back you up, right? In addition to being courageous, it was also the, the willingness to just be free. I can remember thinking to myself that I felt more alive during a protest than any other time. When those protests are happening, you're out there because you're, you're free, you have fellowship, you've got all of this emotional support. It's something that would be crazy on your own isn't crazy when you've got a thousand people out there doing the same thing. And so it looks crazy now. But, it, you know, it's not as crazy with all that support. But in the beginning, it was all of the people together and their energy together that made it transformative. I think there's a thin line between courage and crazy in general, right? Even when criticism from students and calls from university donors brought pressure down on Justin, his trust in others and his belief that he could rely on them if things went down gave him strength. Most people in our community 
knew that we were right in their in their hearts. If anything really happened to us, we knew most people in our community would support us. Somebody asked me one time about this whole rigmarole on the campus, and they said it was really courageous to do what you did and not be afraid of losing your job because I had a good job. And, you know, I guess I wouldn't like to lose it. <laughs> so, but I told them, you know, I got a lot of people that will support me. It's not, it's not like I'm just out here on my own. I got all these people in Ferguson. I know that if stuff really hit the fan, that they'd, they'd either shut things down, they'd be using their power, their access to the media to stand up for me. When, you, when you're around that type of courage, it's going to rub off. And I think that's what happened. You see all the courageous acts that people like Brittany and Tori, Elizabeth Vega, who's a real, she's a real tough one. And you see them putting their body on the line. You see them getting arrested. You see them doing all this. And then you come back and you're sort of like, well, how am I going to be letting the security guard at my own school push me around and not stand up for myself? One of the names on that list is Tef Poe. Rapper, activist, and delegate to Geneva with Justin and the others. We met Tef in a downtown St. Louis bar. He had just returned from a Fight for 15 rally for a living wage in Chicago. Growing up in North County, Ferguson was familiar territory and the site of an early prophetic vision. St. Louis has always had this kind of um, energy in the air that, that, that told you something was going to happen here. I remember being a kid and standing at the corner of Chambers and West Florida trying to cross the street to go get a haircut. And, and that same corner where we were getting tear gassed at and lined up with Black Panthers, it's the same corner I, I stood at like, like 12 and watched cars go by and I was like, yo, I feel like this is the center of the universe for some reason. Like, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm not bullshitting. I promised before on every ounce of blood in my body, I always felt like something was going to happen on West Florida. I always felt that way. Since I was actually from that neighborhood to an extent, uh, these different things represented moments in my life. <laughs> so I, you know, it was just really weird. I never thought, like, you know, I would sit at the bus stop. I would never think that my elementary school would be, like, the safe house. You know, it just never. And people would be like, well, why do you know your way around here so good? Well, my mom worked the after-school program here for forever. My dad was the custodian here. We all went to school. I, I mean, it was just, it's my neighborhood. From back in those days, Teff recalls battling his surroundings and finding solace and hope in hip-hop. I remember being very quiet, very depressed, and the only real fortitude that I found, the only real serenity and solitude that I found was when I discovered hip-hop music. And I can concretely say that, like, not even on some corny, like, save the last dance shit, but if it wasn't for rap music, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, w I probably wouldn't be here. You know, I, there is no probably to it, I would not be here. Tef's music is charged and honest, personal and political. The pursuit of commercial success often compels artists to move to the middle, to abandon edgier content for fear of scaring off listeners and record labels. But Tef's political awareness runs deep. I mean, I was always kind of politically conscious about stuff. I just think that consciousness, had, it, it was like, it's like a muscle, you know, you, you, you strengthen it and you learn how to, you know, build it at a certain point if you're really serious about understanding the world and what's going on. And I think that, that real boom happened for me probably, I think Dead Prez had a lot to do with that. I mean, there were things before Dead Prez, like Wu-Tang, but Dead Prez was the sustainability factor of that. So, so that, by that point, I'm in high school. 
I'm listening to this shit. At this point, we, Dead Prez was public enemy for us. Like, we hadn't seen anything like that. And it, it like completely shifted everything that I was on. So I remember listening to this album and feeling like I was a part of something, some type of political formation group, you know, some type of political study group. Damn, are we possibly like turning into like young Black Panther cadets type of shit? Dead Prez is a Marxist, Pan-Africanist, anti-imperialist rap group who assemble around the cry of revolutionary but gangster. Hip-hop is an unrelenting force of political change from below. Tef associates in this realm, and the Black Panther Party's legacy here is crucial. Tef's organization, Hands Up United, in many ways builds on the work of the Panthers and their vision of Black community building, defense, and empowerment. Thinking about systems of oppression instead of the mere instances of it prompts Tef and his comrades to consider the global nature of their struggle. I think Ferguson for me represents us coming back to the party, us coming back to the collective human body that stands against global oppression. When you see the young kids out there with their faces covered up, we, we rock bandanas, not kafias, right? But the bandana is our kafia. But you won't understand that if you weren't of that resistance culture. And you won't understand that the usage of the bandana during the tear gas was motivated from seeing the usage of the kafia during when people were tear gas. You, you won't understand how these worlds are parallel and how one people's version of resistance motivates another people's version of resistance and vice versa. Because people don't even trip off the fact that two weeks before, what are we seeing on TV constantly? Gaza. What are we seeing? Nobody's tripping off this shit. Like, like black people don't got TV, right? So, like, we seeing this shit, and then you show up in my neighborhood with the same shit I saw you show up in Gaza with. So I saw how the homies in Gaza responded to this. So I guess this is how we're going to respond to this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a logical ABC, you know, but people, I, I think that's the, the shit, the thing that sucks about American racism is that people who treat it like, you're supposed to have this fucking Barty the Dinosaur fucking response to a gun being in your face. Like, well, what made you do that? Maybe my fucking life being on the line made me do that. Tuff's music and community work are products of his time in the streets, and his experiences have permanently narrowed his focus on political and social causes. But his emotional outlook and sense of self were also affected. Man, keeping it real, I was very depressed leading into August. The deepest depression that I've ever been through in my life, and I've had some very dark moments. I, I kind of battled depression. Prior to that moment, I believed that I, I was a fairly happy person. I, I still believe that I'm a happy person. But now I think now, man, after Ferguson, we all kind of live with so much more stress, you know, like, than we can even imagine. And, and, you know, I'm in a totally different space than what I was before those 100 days. So after those 100 days, now, I mean, I mean, my Twitter feed tells the story. Like, <laughs> I'm not a, a, a very light guy in some circles. And uh, that's changed the way that I function. You know, I, I, I used to be a regular cat, man. I used to go to parties and shit. And I mean, I was involved in politics, but it didn't dictate my life like this. Things are different now. Look, I'm the kind of person that sleep with the lights on or the TV on. You know, I don't watch scary movies at all. I saw this as a, a revolution, and in theory, I, I know it may sound martyrish, but I came out here expecting to die. 
I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say I wanted to die, but there's. There was a high. There were tanks. There were people with M16s out here. You, you get what I mean? I'm not even saying a police had to be targeting me. Even if it's an accidental shooting, there are guns out here, and I thought like, hey, you know, anything can happen to me out here, and I need to be aware of that. And I just didn't realize I was. I'm not saying this is anywhere near war, okay? But there, it does take a, a level of bravery to step out and put yourself out there. And I didn't realize I was as brave as I am. Tony Rice resides in Ferguson. Prior to the uprising, he worked with his hands, doing odd jobs in construction. 10 years earlier, Tony bought his first home, but lost it when he started protesting. Tony chose Ferguson because of the community he saw there. And he recalls pleasant, colorblind relationships with his neighbors. I didn't think about it as being so much of a diverse community. you know. We didn't use those type of terminologies prior to, to August 14. No one said that on a regular basis. But when I was forced to look at, look at it, I realized all my neighbors were white, you know? you know. I mean, my immediate neighbors, meaning the one who lived across the street, the one who lived next door, and the one behind me. I'm like, well, they're white. And our relationship was amicable. It, it was great. You know, my neighbor had the key to my house. I had the key to his house. Uh, he worked on cars and we shared tools. It was it was what you expect neighbors to be. If I work midnights for, uh, let's say, two weeks in a row or something, I wake up in the morning, he would have cut my grass. Prior to 2014, Tony was not politically involved. And when the protest started, he didn't know how to contribute or where to plug in. His home was within walking distance to a major protest site in front of the Ferguson Police Department. The tire shop across the street was a staging point for protests, and Tony came upon it one morning, the parking lot a mess from the night before. So we over here, and I was like, I don't know what I can do, but look, I know one thing you can always do. And I saw a guy, and he was cleaning up with a broom. I'm like, hey, I can help clean up. You know what I'm saying? So I let people protest through the course of the day. And at the end of the day, I just clean up the mess. You know what I'm saying? We were at a really strategic point across the street from um, the police station on this guy's tire lot, Dandy Worm. I was like, if we just maintain a good relationship with him, we probably would get to stay here just a little bit longer. You know, just we, no one thought we would need to be there for months. We just thought a day or two. So that's how I actually, you know, became a part of the movement was just cleaning up. And then, you know, from there, you know, I just, you know, worked my way uh, uh, through, uh, I don't want to call it leadership, but involvement. You know, my, my involvement escalated. So what, what, hap- what was happening was I became the first person people saw that day they decided to protest. I was I didn't realize this. I was sometimes I was the first person they even met in a pro I mean, like I was saying, a lot of people came down on their own on their own volition and decided, hey, I wanna protest, what can I do? And I found myself like, Hey, um, they say that you was down here, um they somebody said check check with you to see what we need. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking to myself, why are you checking with me? But they were only checking with me because I was the first person there. And a lot of times I would have to, you know, supplies got uh, uh, plentiful. So I was just trying to manage the supplies, keeping the ice in the cooler, knowing which is and what's cooler. You know, just being as organized as I can be. And people be like, hey, is uh, this one guy here today? I'm like, no, he came and he'll be back. I'm like, how do I know all this stuff? Well, the only reason I knew because I was there in the beginning. So I, I watched the day grow and I watched the day end. My interest to the movement started as a janitor, I guess. (laughs) 
Not much glamour in that, but it needed to be done. As weeks stretched on, Tony became a point person on the ground and a resource for the movement. For people traveling from out of town, Tony and his Twitter feed grew into a go-to source for reliable information on events and developments. Since the end of the uprising, Tony has remained one of the few faithful Ferguson protesters, a fixture at local meetings, staying engaged on the issues. While the national spotlight is no longer trained on Ferguson, residents like Tony keep up the pressure to seek reform and hold public officials accountable. If anything, I'm just a mainstay on the ground. You know, I'm just someone people should, can count on that will, who's going to be visible on the ground in Ferguson um, doing the work, you know. You know, um, it's still very few of us, but that's kind of how I see myself right now. The town of Ferguson has been transformed in so many ways, and Tony's work represents one key feature of transformation. If you've ever been to a town council or neighborhood association meeting, you'll know that local government is boring stuff. Low turnouts, lots of complaining, slow movement. But remaining engaged in mundane matters of local government is as essential in Ferguson as it is anywhere else. This is where democracy happens, and this is what democracy demands. Tony knows that and acts accordingly. It's like um, even in small situations, I see myself sticking up for myself. We live a life that if a white person says it, it must be true. Someone white come in here and just say, hey, y'all got to leave out of this room right now. We wouldn't question it. We just get up and leave. Now when even those smallest incidents happen like that, I question it no matter what. And I don't do it just, just to be mean, I, you know. I question it, you know, just for the fact that, you know, you know, we have courage now to question those things that we normally just, just let's just, let's just keep the peace and just get out the way. They must know what they're talking about. They asked us to leave. We're just going to leave, and you, we just leave. But you know, that's that's the life of just being black in America, and we don't we don't even have to um, uh, we don't have to live like that anymore. You know, that day's gone. Emily Davis, like Tony, goes to all the meetings and speaks her mind. A third-generation Ferguson resident, Emily is a white woman and a mother of two. In her life, since 2014, she has become an authoritative voice from the community who reporters frequently seek out for comment. Prior to the protest, though, there was a lot Emily did not understand. I have learned so much in the last 20 months, like stuff that I just didn't know, that just I, that I just didn't understand from being white, from being raised white, that I, I didn't understand. A lot of it has to do with dialogues and conversations that took place at protests, which inspired me to do more research on my own, to look things up, to read things, um, whether I was comfortable with it or not comfortable with it or whatever. There were things that I needed to listen to. These new insights on race and racism compel Emily to speak with other white people, who do not see the value or even the purpose in anti-racist activism. And this results in some awkward conversations. There was a woman who stopped. She works up at the coffee house, and she stopped in the road middle of one night and when we were protesting, and she's like, what are you doing out here? Why are you out here doing this? You know, I walked up to her car, and I explained what had happened, and I was like, you remember Mike Brown? That's, you know, that's why we're out here. Then this was like, I don't know probably a year later, and she said something about doing something. She's like, don't you have a job? And I was like, first of all, it's 9 o'clock at night. And second of all, I was like, well, I do have a job, actually. I do have a job. My job is to teach my kids not to grow up to be racist. Like, that's my job. And so and she was a little taken aback. Um, but we had a conversation there, and it was important. It sort of brought her down a few notches, and mm -hmm. it felt a little bit safer when she was able to leave. 
Emily's consciousness of white supremacy and how it operates is a seismic reorientation of how she sees the world and how she sees herself. For white people to recognize how their privilege perpetrates racism demands a degree of self-reflection and a self-critique that is not easy. It demands having awkward conversations with yourself. I have a much better understanding of, again, not only what racism looks like systemically, not just interpersonally, but I've also realized what being white means, right? That white, most people will say, well, that's not, that's just the way things are. No, it's not. It's, it's being white. Like it's a thing we do culturally. It's not the norm. It's not the default. It's a white thing. And we need to stop imposing that um, on everybody and acting like when people don't conform to our standards, what we consider, you know, society standards that are in fact white culture. I've come into a lot of understanding about sort of what being white means and how to look at it and what my role is. My dream was to have a like wind stream or something, <laughs> just be a gypsy. And now I'm like stuck in St. Louis, like that wasn't in the plan at all. One name in particular was mentioned repeatedly by many we spoke with, Elizabeth Vega. Vega is a Chicano poet and activist, a grandma and a grad student, with a background in end-of-life care and art education. She applied her experience when she encountered a grieving community in Ferguson. I had just got like money for my books, and I spent a lot of it on art supplies and went to Canfield and did a pop-up art space. It's this huge story wall that we created where we just held space for people with art supplies so that they could express like what they were thinking, what they were feeling. Because sometimes art has a way of just kind of transcending words so that you can, it gets you to the words. Like sometimes you need symbols before you can get words and language. And so like we did art and we like made buttons and like I had a seven-year-old girl who made a button that said I don't trust the police and I was like well you know not all cops are bad and she looks at me and she's like yeah but how will I know the difference through the 100 days Vega was everywhere with her markers and poster board button maker and story wall but also with her voice and her body these were not her first protests and the shooting of Michael Brown didn't transform her outlook but it did refocus her on the future so, you know, it's all connected. And so the motivation comes from those kinds of personal stories that to know that as a human being, I cannot in good conscience avert my eyes from that kind of suffering and not do anything about it. It is a slight to my humanity to like not do something about it. And like I had always been an activist, but you know, after August 9th, like, I feel like there's a storm coming and we have to prepare. Oh, this is the beginning. This is only the beginning. In order to prepare, Vega solidified her commitment and used the student loan to buy a house in a neglected neighborhood that would serve as a base of operation and an anchor space for the community. There, she hosts food pantries and other events and services. Vega dreamt of being a gypsy, but instead put down roots. When we met Vega at the house, she cooked us breakfast. So, um, you know, we've done a lot of like art actions and stuff like that, art builds. And um, 
And then this space here is called ROOTS, and it stands for Resistance, Organizing, Ownership, Transformation, and Solidarity. And it's a housing cooperative for black and brown activists. Transformed by her experience, Vega devoted herself to pursuing transformative solutions to the problems Ferguson exposed. But those problems go beyond police accountability or criminal justice reform. If prevailing systems like capitalism and the state are not designed to elevate communities of color, then those communities must create their own alternatives. In the case of Elizabeth Vega, transformation is a spiritual process. My daily meditation, prayer, mantra, is like whatever I need to surrender, whatever I need to embrace to fulfill my life's purpose, I willingly do. This mantra captures a central theme among the stories of transformation in Ferguson, the openness and willingness to be transformed by elements beyond our control. Only when we give into external forces that we did not expect, nor were we prepared for, may transformation take hold. For Vega and her comrades, personal purpose shined through when her spirit was tested. But how many of us have truly been tested? What does it take to summon the resolve to take an alternate route? Or maybe it's not really a conscious decision that anyone makes, but an awareness, an impulse, a reaction. The story of Ferguson begins with a single refrain and then splinters off, firing into endless directions, launching narratives and galvanizing communities. The uprising in Ferguson called into existence a new reality made possible by the engagement of ordinary citizens who saw turmoil and distress and acted. Ferguson's voices compose a chorus, each with its own pitch and perspective. And in unison, these voices tell a more robust version of a story we all think we know. A story about community, about contribution, about courage. Ferguson Voices Disrupting the Frame is a podcast, multimedia exhibit, and storytelling website. Visit fergusonvoices.com for the integrated experience, which includes photography and additional interview excerpts. Thank you to the people of Ferguson, Missouri, who participated in this project and trusted us with their stories. The Ferguson Voices podcast is a collaboration produced by Joel Proust and the Moral Courage Project team, written by Joel Proust and Amanda D narrated by Jada Woods and mixed by Brett Sanderson with original music from Lush Life. For more Lush Life, check out his recent mixtape, Idols and Enemies, and visit Lush Life online at theyoungandinlove.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode of Ferguson Voices lands in your feed once it's released. Ferguson Voices is available on iTunes, Google Play, and other platforms. If you like what you hear, Hit us up with a solid rating and share these stories with friends. Thank you for taking the time to listen to all of Ferguson Voices. This project would not be possible without a long list of contributors, including the rest of our team of interviewers and researchers. Stephen Dockerty, Bradley Petrella, Lena Sabug, Sydney Thomas, Quinn Towson Riley, and Olivia Blackburn. Plus our team leads, Jimmy Briggs and Leora Khan. Thank you to the Toki Design Team at TOKY.com for bringing our work to life at FergusonVoices.com. And thank you for sharing these stories.